You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Sir Gordon Ditchens. Gordon is the former coach of the New Zealand men's national team in Rugby Sevens, known as the All Black Sevens. He started coaching the team in 1994 and had immediate success, winning the Hong Kong Sevens International Championship. He then went on to win the Sevens World Series in a record 12 times. Along the way, the team also won the World Cup in 2001 and 2013 and four Commonwealth Games gold medals. He stepped down as the head coach in 2016 and took on the role as the head coach of Samoa. He has been inducted into the International Rugby Hall of Fame and in 2013, was knighted for his services to rugby. Gordon is a coach with a lifelong commitment to the service of people development. As the coach of the All Black Sevens for 22 years, he helped 47 of his players go on to represent New Zealand Rugby Union at the highest level as members of the All Blacks Rugby Union team. And on that list are some of the all-time greats, like Jonah Lomu and Christian Cullen, to name just a couple. He is fiercely determined and fired by a deep sense of confidence that comes from the effort that goes into the preparation and planning behind his teams. He also believes in the importance of nutrition 
and intense training regimes that are intended to be tougher than anything his players will face in an actual match, as this prepares the athletes for better decision-making when they are in the heat of battle on the field. After interviewing Sir Gordon, I can see why New Zealand is considered one of the most proud sporting nations on the planet. In this discussion, some of the key highlights for me were how he helps people build self-belief by encouraging them to express themselves as individuals and not to be afraid of making mistakes, his views on mental toughness and the traffic light system he uses to classify players, the terrific story he shares about Roger Federer crying to illustrate the point that losing, although painful, does not necessarily mean failure when you've given your all. This was a terrific and intense conversation with a master coach, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. So Gordon Titchens, good evening and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Where are you in the world today and what have you been up to so far? I'm in Tauranga, which is in the central part of the North Island, essentially. And I'm here and I'm actually our brand ambassador for a sports company called Leech. And being a brand ambassador, I suppose I'm out there selling a great sporting product, apparel. I've been in sales for a long, long time. I was with my engineers as a as a sales director and a general manager for 38 years. And uh, so I've been in sales and I suppose that's where I've got back into sales from a sporting apparel selling that. So I'm enjoying that. Well, I can't wait to talk to you actually about your long history coaching. We are going to touch on the start in Bay of Plenty and uh, all the way through to coaching the All Black Sevens at World Championships at the Olympics. But I'd actually like to start by talking to you about some of the people you've met on that journey because it really is a bit of a who's who of the great coaches, particularly from New Zealand, which has produced some wonderful coaches. So I can see that you've interacted with Sir Graham Henry, Sir John Kerwin, Sir Alex Ferguson, and of course, Steve Hansen. So perhaps I could start by asking you from this perspective, what is it you think that the great coaches do differently? Yeah, well, I, I've always said you never, ever pretend to be someone that you're not. It's always about being you. And you learn from lots of coaches. Every coach is different in a sense. I've met Sir Alex Ferguson as an example. I took my, my All Black Sevens team to a Manchester United training session. I got to spend a lot of time with him to find out what he saw in players, how he identified the players. We talked about David Beckham at the time. Does he do? What does he provide the Manchester United team? And he told me how much a professional athlete he really was, how hard he really worked. His, his fitness was just quite extreme in a sense. He was the fittest on the side. He worked on his game. You'd see him after training, which we saw as an all-back sevens team. We saw him after training out there just going corner after corner. So it wasn't because of who David Beckham was. as was a real professional athlete. And we got to meet him afterwards as well. Like Sir Brian Lahore, another one. I felt his biggest quality was around humility and being humble. And I I challenge anyone in New Zealand to ever say about the, Sir, the late Sir Brian Lahore that no one ever said a bad thing about Sir Brian. He commanded so much respect. The players loved him. And therefore, that to me was a great, great quality. And, and I think it's a quality every coach should have. As I said, everyone's different. And you, you look at Wayne Smith, someone when he was a head coach, didn't enjoy the head coaching role, then moved out to an assistant role after a couple of years as a head coach of the All Blacks. He found it really hard to, to talk to the players after he'd have to drop someone. Smitty found that really hard, and yet technically probably the best coach in the world. 
his strength around his technical and tactical appreciation of the game of rugby, where you'll get some other coaches. Steve Hansen's another one, a great coach. He thinks a lot about the game, has his own humour. I suppose it's a dry, woody sense of humour. But again, he was someone that commanded a huge amount of respect from the players, and he got results. So, Gordon, in 1992... You head over to Scotland as the coach of Bay of Plenty, which is, of course, where you're from. You started coaching there, and you go over to compete in the oldest sevens competition in the world, a competition that's been running since 1883, and you promptly win it. And I wanted to ask, what did you learn from that first victory that then stayed with you as you went forward into coaching the All Blacks? Yeah, quite ironic, really, because Melrose was where Sevens was born. And for us to go and win that that tournament as Bay of Plenty, knowing when we left, when we left with Bay of Plenty, I set some standards around having that work ethic, pushing my players, nutritionally making changes with a lot of these players that were predominantly Māori within my side. And of course, um, those changes, we were flying over the other side of the world to compete in probably then uh, one of the greatest sevens tournaments. So we were going there to win it. We had this attitude. We worked tremendously hard back in New Zealand. We prepared really well, and I learned a lot about preparation. I pushed the players to the limit then, and, and of course, we went over there, and it was one game at a time, and, and we won that particular tournament. I remember uh, the commentator, uh, McLaren, uh, from Scotland. I always remember a famous guy, just, his first name's actually just, I'm trying to remember what that was, but I can't remember, but he was such a, a figurehead within Scotland. He commentated my trainings. He interviewed me afterwards. He wanted to know about every player in, in your side. And, and every player at that time had some wonderful skills, in, in my belief. We'd beaten Auckland convincingly back in New Zealand at a local sevens tournament. We'd, we'd won a lot of games. So we went over there with a lot of confidence. But again, I backed myself with the players that I had at that particular time to, to go on to win five games to then win the, the Melrose Cup, which was something that I'll never forget. But I think that's what got me I suppose the New Zealand coaching role was the way 1992 we won that particular tournament and 93 I coached the All Black Sevens B team and then in 1994 I went on to coach the will start my coaching career with New Zealand so what it really taught me I put made changes with the players at that particular time on the Bay of Plenty side I made changes they adapted to those changes they all bought into it and with that came a long success so in 1994 you take on the job as the All Black Sevens coach and you head up to the Hong Kong Sevens and you beat Australia in the final. In fact, that team goes on to win three titles in a row. And so I wanted to ask you, what were some of the first things you did when you took over that team that fueled that success? Well, the Hong Kong Sevens tournament used to be the only tournament, I suppose, on the calendar year for international teams was the Hong Kong Sevens. So it was one tournament. And of course, at that particular time, I had the luxury to select top players, top All Blacks. At that time in 1994 was Jonah Lomu's very first year as an 18-year-old playing for counties in Palmerston North, in which I selected him from that particular side. I had Eric Rush. I was lucky enough to have a, a great, great captain that went on to coach my side for 13 years, or captain my team for 13 years. So in that, in 1994, I knew for, through previous years, through talking to Eric, that the turn-up in Hong Kong a week before the tournament and every night they'd go to the Bull and Bear, which was one of the hotels, and have a few drinks. And so it wasn't as serious then as I suppose everyone perhaps thought. And I made changes. We weren't going to go to the Bull and Bear. We were there to win the tournament. And my trainings were quite legendary. In a sense, they were ruthless. I worked them particularly hard, 
prior to getting over to Hong Kong. And then everything else in Hong Kong was technical, tactical, keeping them away from that bull and bear uh, hotel or pub or whatever you might want to call it. Obviously, no fried food. I made They had to make massive changes because that was my coaching style. And I had Eric Rush that bought into that as the captain. And he was one of the guys that loved to go to the bull and bear, that loved his fried food. He made those changes. They all bought into it. And, of course, we take the success. And that was the start of my coaching career and start of Hong Kong. But they bought in to what I believed in, which was really, really important. How did you get them to buy in? Sounds like there were some pretty ingrained behaviours. Well, there. yeah, it's about, obviously, building trust and, of course, getting their respect. I worked hard myself as a, as a coach in terms of I'm really into fitness. I get out, I run around with them on the training field. I work particularly hard. I look after myself in terms of my nutrition. I do drive health. And I, I saw that as a real ingredient. I mean, I, I saw a nutritionist in New Zealand before I took over the side. And I got her to talk to me about nutrition and the importance and, and what it can do with your teams. And because sevens, let's face it, is a hugely demanding sport, physically and mentally. And it's a challenging sport. And if you're not a fit side, you'll never, ever make it in the, in the scene of round sevens. As simple as that. The conditioning is brutal, but my trainings have always been harder than any game they'll ever play. And I believe that's why we won so many World Series, so many tournaments. And the number of games we won at the last player of the game, last player of the game, was incredible. And I put that down to the levels of fitness. And also, obviously, if you're very, very fit, you make good decisions at important times. So they bought into that. And of course, winning Hong Kong in 94, then doing it again in 95 and 96, nothing changed. And within that team, you must remember, I had a Christian Cullen come through, had a Jonah Lomu, Glenn Osborne, Eric Rush, Dallas Seymour. They were senior players, but they bought into exactly what I wanted. And I'm a real believer that any player that's come through the seven system that's gone into 15s, they'll always perform because I've reached certain fitness levels that they've probably never ever reached before. And it's made a difference to their game. Gordon, you say that winning starts with the creation of a culture. So if someone was listening and wanted to turn around their culture within their organisation or potentially even establish a new culture, where would you tell them to start? Well, I think that comes down to us and the onus is on a coach is you've got to have the right people. So you have to recruit well. It's about selecting the right people that are going to buy into the culture that you believe is going to be successful for your team. And I've always selected on character. And character is huge. Character and coachability work hand in hand. And that, to me, is vital. So once you've selected your side that they believe, and I've always put down culture about, I've always, rugby and sport in general, particularly team sports, is all about the team. Together, everyone achieves more. That, to me, is there's not one person that's going to continually win your tournaments or you rely on to be the point of difference about winning games and winning tournaments, etc. It's about everyone, together, everyone achieves more. And having a belief in all the players within your squad that can be the point of difference. And that, to me, then you go team, then the unity factor. It's about family, and that's the culture you have to create. You need that family factor. They're important to you. They respect you as a coach. So unity is also important. Then I put down the passion. Every one of my players has to be passionate for whom they represent and what the jersey really means to them. And, of course, the discipline factors in two areas. So having that work ethic, which they must have, and also not just aside from the work ethic, but making those changes, which we talked about, around nutrition, around the will and the want to achieve. And, of course, he put those four, the team, the unity, the passion, and those disciplines together, that creates a 
a culture which is second to none. But you can only do that after you've done, obviously, point one, and that's selecting the right players that can get out and perform for you and are going to buy into the culture that you believe is going to be successful. Gordon, was there a person or an event that ignited a passion to coach in you? Oh, I've always obviously loved sport. I've looked at at certain coaches. It's different coaching styles because we are all different. But I've always thought, and I started off as a finished, competed playing, played a lot of first-class rugby, played over 100 first-class games. And then I obviously wanted to get into coaching. So I coached on the coalface with some youngsters, some under-20s. And then straight away, not long after that, I was then took Bay of Plenty Provincial side in 15s and also sevens at the same time. And that's how that sort of built up. I sort of look back and I there's been some wonderful coaches over the years that we had a, a Ron Bryars when I was a ball boy many, many years ago. That was a great, great coach. I always looked up to him. He always, I had so much respect for him at the time. Went on to another guy, Eric Anderson, whom I had respect for. And I, so every coach, as I said, is different. And I see, I wanted to be me, but I just had... And thankfully, one day I wanted to be a coach. I wanted to get out there and, and set some standards that I believe could be successful for the teams that I wanted to coach. And, and it was 15s to immediately, 15s to start with, and then sevens. But really, coaching is all about your people's skills. It's the way you communicate. And I learned that, I believe, in the business that I was with, with my engineers. I learned so much from my engineers in a managerial position, in which I had 120 staff that worked under me for a number of years as well. So basically, my rugby teams were basically my staff at Bay Engineers, if you like. So Gordon, in 1998, Rugby 7 starts at the Commonwealth Games, and you lead the New Zealand team to the first four gold medals from 98 to 2010. So imagine when the sport was included in the Rio Olympics in 2016, your expectations were pretty high. Now, the team didn't win the gold. In fact, they didn't medal at all. And I, you've spoken a lot about that. So I don't really want to go into the drivers of that result. But what I would like to ask you is, how did you help the team handle that result, given they had such high expectations, maybe even a sense of entitlement that went along with their underperformance in Rio? We always knew it was going to be tough. I'd be talking to the New Zealand Rugby Union for a long, long time that as a, as a country, we needed to centralise as a sevens team because all the teams were catching up at that particular time. Yep, we went to four Commonwealth Games and we won four gold medals. We went to Scotland and we lost in Scotland, I think it was 2014. We got beaten in the final by South Africa to achieve a silver medal status. And I always remember coming off after that final and they went into a holding room for the medal ceremony. And my players were devastated. We'd never lost at the Commonwealth Games. And we went in there and we got silver medal. I was proud of my side. We still had a chance to win in the last play of the game. Akira Yuani dropped the pass from Tim Mickelson. I still remember it. We had an opportunity from a turnover to still win against South Africa to win another gold medal, and it wasn't to be. Immediately afterwards, I went up to Akira. He felt devastated, such a young player who'd have dropped the pass he felt he should have caught. And it goes back to when I talk about I talk about that team factor that we all buy into. We just support each other. And because in that holding room, before the medal ceremony, it was like a funeral parlour. Honestly, it was. They were broken because they'd never been beaten at the Commonwealth Games. And here we are. I said, be proud of what you've just achieved, fellas. The game was on a knife edge. We weren't good enough. We were beaten by a better team. We go to South, we go to the, uh, the Olympic Games and we, we, get, we strive to win gold. We're one of the favourites to win gold. We lost our first game against Japan. 
And that's the evenness of sevens. Sonny Bill Williams snapped his Achilles tendon. Scott Curry, he did his shoulder. Joe Weber, who went on as a replacement, also did his shoulder. So I lost three of my top players in the very first game. But we still put ourselves in a position to still win gold. We played Fiji in the quarterfinals. We led Fiji at halftime. We got beaten in one of the last plays of the game to lose that particular game to Fiji, who went on to win the gold medal. And that's how close it can be. And, and I still are proud. I still felt I had the team to win that goal, and it wasn't to be. And that's sport, and that's something. You know, when you pull the players in, you say, guys, you just look, you can. All you want to do is know they've gone out there, everyone went out and emptied the tank. We just weren't good enough. We didn't execute when we needed to at critical parts of the game. And we weren't good enough. And and I think you, I always look at Roger Federer. And I talk about this a lot because in 2008, he played the greatest game of sevens tennis I'd ever seen at Wimbledon. He'd already won about five Wimbledons. He played Nadal in the final, went to five sets. Fantastic game. Nadal beats Federer. I saw the interview afterwards. Federer was actually visibly on TV, cried. And I'll always, I'll never forget this. And there was a write-up after this particular interview. Well, and it said, Nadal won the greatest game of tennis but Federer gained in defeat. He showed us that losing, although painful, is not necessarily failure. How can it be when you've given it all you have? And that says it all. You can go out, yeah, losing hurts, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's failure. And you've got to tell your players that. We just weren't good enough. On some days we are, some days we're not. And those big moments, I mean, you go to Olympic Games, very first Olympic Games, first time the All Black Sevens has ever been to the Olympics. And we weren't good enough to win that gold. We weren't good enough to medal. They've just come back from another Olympics, beaten in the final. That gold medal's still eluding them. But that's rugby. That's sevens. Who would have thought South Africa wouldn't even get a medal? You think about England and, you know, some of those those bigger nations, Great Britain, nowhere near it. Was Fiji, New Zealand, Argentina. And that's how competitive sevens rugby is now. But as a coach, you always have that belief you still can win regardless of the, the firepower that you have. But at the same time, you can still be proud or the way the players gone, went out to perform. And it just doesn't happen sometimes. And I suppose that's how we measure as coaches. And it's pretty tough, but we've got to have uh, big shoulders and, uh, and you take the good with the bad. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So, Gordon, I'm Australian, but I can reflect on the fact that New Zealand is one of, I think it probably is, the most proud sporting nation on the planet. What drives that sense of pride that is the envy of so many other organisations around the world. We've got so much depth in, in New Zealand as rugby. It's in our DNA, and that's that's really where it's at. And and because 
I talked about passion before and what the black jersey means to them, and it means so so much, so much support in New Zealand. I mean, it's I mean when you coach the All Blacks Sevens team, doesn't matter what country you're going into, whether you're in Japan, whether you're through Asia in China, they looked we looked upon as gods, obviously because the All Blacks have such a name right throughout the world, and of course it's uh, with that comes pressure, okay, of course, but. I really enjoyed and was proud of the fact to be coaching an All Black Sevens team. And we've had so much success over the years and we'll continue to do so. I'm a real believer in that because we do things well over here, but the support's always there. And I, I suppose Sevens rugby, and we talked about culture before, and we talked about even if I talked about Jonah, Jonah loved being involved in the Sevens team as hard as what it was, the conditioning methods that, were, that I had and what it did for him as a rugby player. You know, you can imagine the distractions to going to hotels for Jonah because he was such a famous person, but he just loved the environment of our sevens team. He loved the jersey. The jersey meant everything to him. A Tongan boy, but he wanted to wear the black jersey. Never lost in the All Black Sevens team, ever. Won, a, won three Commonwealth Games, sorry, three Hong Kongs with me. He won a World Cup in 98 with me and won a Commonwealth Games in 99, yeah, 1998 as well and a World Cup, sorry, in South America. Never lost, and um, and of course that's just us. It's we just uh, we're blessed to have so many athletes in New Zealand that can apply themselves to the game of rugby. Well, let's talk about Jonah Lomu actually, because I've got a great quote from him about you, and I'd like to read you the quote before I give you the question. He says, "I wouldn't have achieved half of the things that I have done in my career if it wasn't for Titchens, the attitude and the fortitude of thinking that he had that pushed me to where I got to go." So I wanted to start ask you, because your focus on physical training, which you've talked about in this interview, is actually legendary. It follows you wherever you go. But I wanted to ask, what have you learned by pushing people to such extremes? What have you learned about the human spirit and what it's capable of? Nothing's impossible. I do talk about mental toughness, and I do put it down to attitude. I, then it comes back to, to the people you select. And I've picked players that have never been as skillful you know they're going to empty the tank for you. Jonah was never, ever as fit as what I wanted as a coach. He, he never got to those levels. Then we saw later on in life that Jonah actually had some, some kidney issues. You know, he was quite sick. But he pushed himself. And it wasn't uncommon for Jonah to come up to me after a training, say, Titch, can you come and do a session with me on the roller? So he'd do extra sessions. He'd get lapped in some certain activities at training. But he always gave it his very, very best. And what it did for Jonah, it, it got him fitter than he'd ever got, but he never wanted to let his mates down. And he pushed. And I moved Jonah from the forwards out to the wing in the game of sevens. And because I thought, why take the ball away from him? And all of a sudden, here's a guy in space. It was 180 kgs. It had a 1.51 standing 10 for acceleration. Incredibly, 4.71 standing 40. And he had 118 kgs to carry with it. And he was just simply magnificent. He was just great. And so me pushing players I, to get the best out of them. And, and I've had many players over the years say, mate, I'd never have gotten this far because I never realised I could get this fit and push myself as much. There are some players out there with so much rugby talent that will never push themselves. I use a, it's funny, I use a traffic light analogy when I'm assessing players. And you've got red, yellow and green because you never want any reds in your team. There's lots of yellows, and the yellows are the ones that have got all the talent in the world, but you never know what you're going to get out of a yellow. Someday he'll give you the performance of a green, 
and they're a minefield to coach, I can assure you. But then you've got your greens, and the greens are all about intent. Greens are all about the ones that are going to empty the tank for you, that are mentally and physically tough. And that's what, and I've always over the years had 85%, 80% greens on my sides. And with that, that gives your teams consistency and performance, which gives you quite a high winning percentage rate. So again, it comes back to the players that are going to die for the jersey. They're going to give it their all. And, And of course, those were the challenges. But I believe getting the best out of the athlete, and it's really the talent that don't want to go anywhere near the sevens program. Christian Cullen was an amazing athlete. His heart rate went through the roof at times. His support play was tremendous. His fitness level was unbelievable. He went on, in my view, to become one of the best fullbacks in world rugby that we've ever seen in the All Blacks in 15s. Scored 18 tries in 96 in Hong Kong. And people now can still remember him running across the dead board area, being chased by these Fijians, to come right out through the middle of the post and putting Waisaki Mazaraiwa away for an unbelievable try. And that was Christian Cullen launching himself to the world, I suppose, from the sevens team. He's a guy that's going to come along and be one of our best ever fullbacks. So Cully then probably didn't realise how good he could be. But what sevens does now, it gives the athletes an opportunity to express themselves on a rugby field. You can see the step, the acceleration, the pace, and now you don't always see that in 15s now. You don't know how quick an athlete can be. You don't know, you didn't realise he had an in-out, could beat someone beautifully on the outside, got a great fend, and they get challenged defensively in sevens because you can't hide. So again, I also go back to the benefits of what sevens can provide any athlete, and it does, it gives them that exposure to go on to, to obviously to to greatness in times like Cullen and Lohman. I have another great quote from you, Gordon, I'd like to read to you. You say, in terms of coaching, it's always about your people skills and ability to communicate and also to express as a coach that you care for the people who are playing for you. It was the last part of this quote that caught my eye. And so I'd like to ask you about the concept of caring and how your focus on this aspect of your coaching evolved through your career. Well, I'll give you one real example. I always remember when I, I picked both the Yuani brothers, Rico Yuani and Akira Yuani in my side. Got two youngsters. Rico was 17. Akira was 19. So as a coach, how do I get the best out of these two players that are huge environment, which can be quite intimidating sometimes, coming into this environment where I've got a, a coach that's just ruthless about fitness and making changes in their diet and nutrition. So the very first thing I did was go and meet his mum and dad at the Olympic Cafe in Auckland. And I spent an hour with them to find out about Rico, to find out about Akira. And you've got two brothers that are chalk and cheese. One that's hugely motivated in Rico and Akira, which uh, I suppose Rico had to get Akira out of bed to go to training as youngsters. So one pushed himself a lot harder than the other one. So after I had a meeting with them, and the pluses I saw was I actually cared about Sandra and Eddie's children, Rico and Akira. Here's two boys that were going to come away to tournaments on the World Series. Rico just leaving school, Akira just out of school one or two years in the professional era. Because I cared about them, that meeting that I had an hour with them in Auckland was about building trust and knowing that I would look after those boys when they're in my sevens environment. Amazing, really. And I believed those boys knew I had the meeting with their mum and dad because I built that relationship and I built that trust. Therefore, I'm going to get the best out of those two boys. And they both performed hugely for me. And to be fair, if I went back to that colour analogy that I talked about, Rico's always been a green. Rakira's been a yellow. 
but he's now a green. And look at him, probably the best number six in world rugby. We all make mistakes in life, whatever that might be, off the field sometimes, which has a, an influence on whether we get selected or not. But those boys have made changes, and both of them, as young as they are, and the number one all-black team as we speak, but great rugby players. But that meeting that I had about building trust and caring for the athletes confirmed everything that I believe in. I met Jonah's dad and mum at times. Joe Rukatoko, I can go back a long time where I see that as the point of difference sometimes in getting the best out of the athletes because you care about them. We talked earlier about Eric Rush being a great captain. There was also DJ Forbes and Carl Tanana in there as well. You've, you've had a couple of good captains along the way. And what has this taught you about the importance or shaping a great captain-coach relationship? It's those important meetings that you have and what do you select on. But all of those players that I've mentioned are different captains in their own right. Different, it's like coaches, different captain styles, coaching styles. And what do they offer? But they, every one of those players had the sh- had so much respect from the players that they were captaining, even Liam Messer. Their attitude towards training, they're obviously, they, they bought into exactly what we wanted, what I wanted as a coach, what we, when we had those important meetings, but they led really well. Eric Rush, he's still playing for me at 38 years of age. Hugely inspirational, commanded a huge amount of respect. Every one of those other players, DJ Forbes, exactly the same. He played with his actions and what he did on the rugby field. Cal Tanana was ruthless around attitude. The players had to have the right attitude. Always remember him saying, bar up. And when we're under pressure, the game's on a knife edge, Cal Tanana stood up. Amazing. Just great, great leaders. And there weren't many leaders in the entire time when I look at it in terms of DJ Force. I'd Matua Parkinson one year, who was hard, brutal, and he led by the way of his actions on the rugby field. And he pushed them at training. And I needed that assistance from my leaders to push those players sometimes because they were some of my sessions were brutally quite tough. Researching and reading about you, Gordon, I, I sense that you have a very strong sense of belief. In fact, I would say your belief is often much stronger than the players that you're leading. And so I wanted to ask you, what have you learned about building belief in others that might be applicable to other people that are listening? Yeah, I sort of said nothing before, like nothing's really impossible. I always had a real belief. It doesn't matter what team I'd be coaching, who we were playing against, or even from players' perspective, that he was better than the player that you're up against, regardless of the name and the stature of that player that you're up against, and building that belief in them. Some players needed motivating, the odd players that needed motivating and assurance, I suppose, and, and confidence to get them up for games. I'd have someone like Dallas Seymour, he was so motivational as a as an individual. He knew how to motivate and get up. So I always knew I was going to get out of Dallas Seymour. Just a couple of little words in the ear of the odd player that was just enough around that self-belief factor that you're good enough. That's why you're in the side. Because particularly young players, Joe Weber was a young player coming through, could step, could break, could beat guys like nothing. But when he got up to, to my level, to the All Black Sevens level, he thought he was just there as a distributor. But I wanted him to express himself and have that real belief for what he was doing at secondary school and what he was doing at provincial level, he could do in the international stage. And that's the belief that you give them, the ability for them to express themselves. And we make mistakes, but you learn from your mistakes. And that's something... Once you talk to them about that, we do a lot of reviews afterwards. We do a lot of, we get out the, obviously, the, the laptops and we everyone sits down and they do 
obviously look at their their own performance, which we all do. They come and they produce a, a memory stick with all their everything they did in whatever certain game, and we go through it. I get them to talk me through it, and there are times that things they should have done, what they did well, and what they didn't do. But I'm always been a coach also that you always talk about the positives and you turn those negatives into a positive sort of way because everything is always about intent. If we drop a pass, there are reasons why you drop that particular pass, but then you move on to your next job. And so that that self-belief factor and intent work hand in hand. And, um, and obviously for me, just a little word to someone before going out to a game, going to the bus in the game, it could be a training just instilling in a lot of self-belief that they can go out and be the best that they can be. How do you maintain your belief in the face of what must be rather intense media scrutiny? I imagine rugby stops the nation in New Zealand. Is there anything that you do or have found to be more successful in perhaps blocking out that negative noise? Yeah, I always said when I, obviously, I was the media were I was like a I suppose uh, they attacked me in a sense after after losing in Rio. Like you can imagine, I used to attract more media when you lost than than when you won. It's just a fact of life because it's something that I that I got used to. But I was always confident that I'd given it everything in terms of preparation, planning to get up to win whatever tournament it might be. I looked at different ways. I looked at different teams and how they shaped their weeks. I looked at what was best for our week. And then we'd, I believed our management team and myself, we'd done everything we possibly could for the players to go out and perform. And I was always there sitting ready for the media at the completion of if we weren't successful in a certain tournament. And certainly Rio, well, I mean, we had media everywhere, and of course. But I was happy to, to take all the, the media and I wasn't about to to associate their blame on anyone, the team or anything. To me, I took the onus of what happened. And I, but I, as I said today, and I still back myself, I believed we did everything within our power as a management team for that team to go out and win gold and we weren't good enough. And I'm happy with that. Gordon, if I had a time machine and could take you back and introduce you to that five-year-old who was playing barefoot on the frosty grounds of Rotorua with St. Michael's, knowing what you know now... What would you say to him? I mean, I had a love for footy at the age of five. We came from a family that was associated with, with rugby. And yeah, those those mornings on a frosty morning in Rotorua, playing bare feet. And I mean, I never ever thought that rugby would be such a big part of my life. But I love sport in general. And, and at that time, so if I saw a young, a young kid, and, and obviously I had a bit of talent then when I was five, and six and coming through and, and I had the support of my parents at that particular time as well and to me I'm, I'm a real believer that if you love the game that you're playing then you push yourself you learn to understand in terms of um, everything is about perseverance and having the passion for something that you love doing and you've got to make lots and lots of good choices in your life growing up as a youth and I think those are choices are important moving forward and my choice also was, uh, I want to be an All Black. And if you wish to have that, if that's what you aspire to be, and as a youngster, you, we all do. They all look up at the at the All Blacks. My dad would take us to an All Black test. You never forget it. As a rugby player, you wanted to be that All Black. I'd play out in the backyard with my twin brother and my sister, and my older brother. And we were always a different. We were someone was a, an All Black, someone was this player and this player, and and away we went continually. To me, if the the drive and the will and the want here as a youngster 
and you love it, then just keep working hard. Maybe just one final question, if I can, to finish. I, I know you're still coaching, but I'd like to ask you, when you do finally hang up that whistle, what's the legacy you hope you've left as a coach? Legacy that I'd like to, I think I'd like to have left it for particularly for the game of sevens in terms of what, how it can create such a great, great pathway for someone to go on to achieve his dreams. I've had 47 players that have come through the All Black Sevens team that have gone on to become All Blacks. Some that, that Sevens that we had, the legacy, hopefully the drive, these tough trainings, mentally and physically challenge them, that they've made them into what the players there are today. And obviously you get a real buzz when you hear some players that on record that have said Sevens changed their life. And I'd like to think that Sevens rugby in general, because I've been such a driver of Sevens, that legacy's there, that it's that creates that pathway to go on to be the best you can be on a, as a rugby player and to achieve your dream. I think that's probably a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Sir Gordon. It's it's Monday morning here in uh, Romania and you've got me all fired up for the week ahead. So thank you so much for your time today. No worries, mate. No worries. Hi everyone, it's Paul here and you have been listening to the great coach Sir Gordon Titchens. Some of the key highlights for me were the story he shares about selecting Jonah Lomu as an 18-year-old in 1984 and how this was the springboard that propelled him onto the world stage. The importance of meeting the families of the players he coaches so he can find the right way to build trust and care with the individual. The link between fitness and the quality of decision-making in games and wanting to leave a legacy where Rugby Sevens becomes a pathway for people to go on and achieve their dreams. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just before we go, if you are one of the people who has listened to our podcast in one of the 50,000 times it has been played, and you have any feedback, an element of leadership you would like us to explore, or know a great coach that you think we should interview, then please let us know. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.